we are embarking upon Holy Week. And Holy Week, if we see anything in the story, it is a story that challenges our presuppositions. And so today, I just want to set the scene. We are going to talk about something that for, for many of us in the room is quite heavy. For our culture, it's quite heavy. It is fraught. It is charged. And so I want to just invite you to just take a deep breath. And acknowledge nothing I'm going to say here is with the intention of wounding or making anybody upset at me. If you hear something, you're like, ooh, I don't know about that. My email is ian at ecclesiamj.com. <laughs> I'm just, I, and I don't say that with any, there's no, there's no threat. There's no like, please, please. If anything I say today causes you to, to, to get your back up or question, please don't walk out angry. That's not the spirit of what we're going to talk about today and certainly not the spirit that I'm approaching this with. I would love, love to have a conversation. And so uh, Palm Sunday in many ways is a challenge of our political assumptions. And so that's kind of where we're starting. Now I'll say this, I, I, if, you, if you are here today and you've been wounded in your own family, if this, this kind of larger political conversation in America and we will kind of be focusing on that as our locus point. I know many of you are not from America, which is an incredible gift. Thank you for being here, truly. Um, we get to embody Jesus' call that we will be a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation right here in this room. But if, if you're coming from a different culture, I just want to invite you to do the work of transposition. There are these probably seeds present in your own culture. And so understanding how this works out in your own space. But if you've seen the movie uh, A Hidden Life, directed by Terrence Malick, it's a beautiful story about Franz Jägersteier. Franz Jägersteier was an Austrian farmer who got conscripted into Hitler's army in World War II. And he serves in a previous engagement, and he sort of has this sense, like they're watching the propaganda videos that they're showing about the enemy. And Franz, you can see it on his face, he kind of has this sense, he's like, I think we're the bad guys. And so as World War II escalates, he's gone back home to be with his family, but then the German forces start conscripting more people, and they come to his town, they say, hey, if you're a, a man of fighting ability and age, you have to go serve. And, you know, it's kind of, at first, it's kind of an invitation, like sort of with the expectation that you'll do it. It later becomes a compulsion, but Franz doesn't go. He stays, and Terrence Malick does this incredible job of painting this idyllic scene. Like there's, in the movie, there's these like two competing things going on. There's the darkness that is the war and all that it pertains to the Nazis. And then there's this incredible vista and scenery. Franz Jägersteier lives at the foot of the, the Alps there in Austria. And there's these two narratives that are diverging. And as the war escalates, Franz Jägersteier, because of his refusal to serve in Hitler's army, is arrested. And his family is still back home, and they're treated terribly by the town because for, for them, Jägersteier has brought shame upon their town. But before Franz Jägersteier is arrested, and he will eventually be martyred and killed for his faith, his profound faith in Jesus. Before he's arrested and taken off, he has this conversation. Malik portrays this conversation between an artist in the church and Franz Jägersteier. And the man is painting, and he says, I paint, you know, these religious images for people to come to worship. And he's, he's touching up a picture of Jesus, and he says, I paint their comfortable Christ. And he says this, someday, 
I will paint the real Christ. And today, my hope, my prayer all, you know, for, for a long time over our church is that we would be people not in some arrogance or not that we see things that other people don't see, but that we would be people who welcome the real Jesus into our midst. The Jesus that we see revealed in the scriptures. And one of the central themes, we've been on this series on idolatry, which kind of, uh, every sort of teaching sort of sets itself up in a kind of polemic sort of way. Like there's sort of a way where you're looking at something with a negative slant. And there's something with idolatry that we kind of have to approach it from that angle. But what we've been trying to say is we want to point out the idols so we can see the freedom that is so much better that God calls us to. And one of the central themes that we've been tracing throughout this series is that we become like what we worship. This is such a prominent reason why the scriptures warn us against worshiping idols. It's not just that God loves us and wants us to respond to him in worship because that is who we were made to be. It's so much more than that. We become like what we worship in the scriptural imagination. Either we worship the glory of God and thus we are glorified, we become more of who we were made to be, or we worship and bow down to idols, which deforms us. Worshiping distorted images makes us less than human because we're not worshiping the God who gives us life, we're worshiping objects. The prophets will go to great lengths to describe how those who worship idols, and in their uh, mindset, it's like statues. Like if you worship a statue, you become like a statue, unable to hear, unable to speak, unable to move. He says you're worshiping gods that can't save. Idols blind our perception and our discernment. We are called to make judgments. We are called to be wise, and idols make us fools. Now, nowhere is this more clear to me more frequently than our, in our political discourse in the United States. So I'm going to put up a picture of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. The first black woman ever nominated and appointed the highest court in the United States. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, there are some people in here, like you saw like her judicial record, and you agree with her, and you're like, this is amazing. Maybe for others of you in here, you're like, oh my goodness, we should be terrified, this person. But... but Put those feelings aside for just a moment. I don't know how much you saw of the senatorial confirmation hearings that took place over the last couple of weeks. Now, you and I both could suppose a world where reasonable people asked reasonable questions of this woman to try to determine her qualifications to be a Supreme Court justice. That is not what we got if you watch any of the proceedings. Basically, you had grandstanding, and whether the person agreed with Justice Jackson or was opposed to her, you kind of could trace what the questions and what the comments were going to be from there. And again, if you think about idols robbing us of our discernment, robbing us of our ability to be wise and to sort through and to judge, like you sort of see this playing out. Like for me, in my best hopes, I would see somebody who supports Judge Justice Jackson but also has some qualms with the way she handles some things. I'd be like, hey, I think you're really qualified. I think you're great. Have some questions. I have some disagreements with you there. We're on you know, the same side, but here we are asking a question that may be seen as challenging, but we don't get any of that in the United States. right? We kind of have these two sides that are separating more and more. And again, what is that but an example of a failure to reason, a failure to think? And, and what I think today we have the opportunity to see is that Jesus challenges our capitulation to ideology. Because when ideology determines the discourse, 
When ideology makes us unable to hear, unable to speak in a surprising way, it has become an idol. And ideology, as exemplified very viscerally in our political conversations and idolatry, often go hand in hand. Can I just talk candidly for a moment? I've been a pastor for 15 years. I'm young, but I've been at this a little while. And specifically over the last 10 years, I've seen the polarization that I saw on a national level increase at a local level. I've seen people leave churches because the church didn't talk about politics enough or they talked about it too much. I've seen people leave churches because they construed a comment as being directed at one side of the aisle and wasn't directed at the other. I've seen families torn apart because people can't dialogue. And I know for many of you, that's not just a, con a concept, something over there. That's your reality. And if that's you, I just want to say, I'm sorry. And I hope that we can be a people of a different way. I have friends who have left the faith because of how Christians have engaged in politics. Dear friends, people that I helped come to Jesus that are just like, I can't do it anymore. So this is not a thing that's far off for any of us. Even, even now, like you may be the kind of person, I like big thoughts, I like big ideas. You may be the kind of person who's like, I don't care about any of this stuff. But it's become, it's accelerated so much that every room that we enter into, there's sort of this latent thing that's going on there. And so my hope today is that we would find some freedom, some challenge, that we would be able to name some things that need to be named, and that we would find ourselves here in the Jesus story. It would be a lot easier for me as the leader of this church to never talk about this. Like, oh, we're just not going to talk about it. But there's an inherent problem with that. Jesus' message is political, and I, I want to illustrate that to you. The first proclamation that Jesus makes to the crowds in the book of Mark is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We live in a representative democracy. Like, we elect leaders. They go to the, the, the central powers of government, and they make legislation. A kingdom is just a different kind of political arrangement with a king at the top. The king makes the decisions. And so what we sometimes are so inoculated to the language of Jesus, the kingdom of God, but Jesus is saying very plainly, this is a new political arrangement. And I, Jesus, am the king. And again, this is not regressing back to some medieval, like, right of kings sort of situation. This kingdom brings freedom. Jesus in Luke 4 gets up and says, Behold, the, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom to the captives, to open the eyes of the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes proclaiming a kingdom of God. And yes, it has everything to do with our souls and how we will live forever with him in heaven. But that soul is housed in a body. The future, God's glorious future, is brought into our present in the midst of Jesus, the incarnate one, Jesus' first teaching in the Gospel of Matthew are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus lays down his life willingly to be executed by the imperial authorities of his day. When Jesus is arrested, he's tried by the religious leaders Jesus was a part of the Jewish people. He was a first century Jewish man. And in that culture, Rome had set up a system where the Jewish authorities had a measure of authority to be able to arrest and to be able to adjudicate small matters. Life that we are entering into.
gospel this week. If you read that, that story, he's arrested by a collection of the religious leaders from different parties coming together in, to, in conspiracy against Jesus, and then they bring him over to the local Roman governor, who's Pontius Pilate. And if you look at what they accuse Jesus of to Pontius Pilate, we're told in Luke 23, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all of Judea from Galilee, where it began even to this place. In Luke's account, Jesus is tried by Pilate as a rebel, as a usurper, as a rival king that is claiming an authority apart from the imperial authority of Rome. And the question Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews, is a way of asking, have you come to lead an uprising? Because here's what Rome does to those who revolt in uprising. The cross is an instrument of political suppression. It is an instrument that says, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. It is an instrument of political violence. It is an instrument of political suppression. But it doesn't stop there with Jesus. You see, Jesus' followers, traditionally, all of them die in confrontation with the ruling authorities of their day. Paul is beheaded by the Romans. Peter is crucified by the Romans. If the message of Jesus was not inherently political, then Rome would have had no trouble with this new Jesus movement. They would have let them be. Rome was a society that was full of small idols and small cults and faiths. And if you just practice your faith in private, and didn't worry about anything else, you'd be fine as long as you paid homage and worship to the emperor or as long as you participated in the state and cultic religion. But the followers of Jesus routinely resisted this. And you see this throughout the Bible. You see this throughout church history that faithful followers of Jesus said, I cannot claim my king as Jesus and bow to these things. The notion that we are compartmentalized human beings, that you can somehow have a religion and a political affinity, is just a delusion. It is a delusion that's come that doesn't have anything to do with the way we were made, the way we actually live in the world. It was uh, first developed by Immanuel Kant, later extended to sort of a collective impulse by John Locke, and it's woven into our culture, but it's just not the way that we live we try to build up these compartments where it's like, this is my religious preference, this is my political preference, uh, this is my preference for which kind of coffee I like. We are integrated beings. Caitlin Scheiss, in her lovely book, The Liturgy of Politics, writes this, The line between our political beliefs, our moral beliefs, and our theological beliefs is blurry, if not entirely invented. We certainly interact with various people, communities, and institutions in different ways. But none of our beliefs in these categories are ever content to stay in the boxes we've prescribed for them. They'll wonder. They bleed over. Most importantly, they will seek supremacy. If we aren't aware of the deep pull of these beliefs, we will carelessly incorporate them into our lives without ordering them, testing them against more foundational beliefs, and putting them in proper submission to the ultimate controlling authority in our lives. 
We can't compartmentalize our religious and our political beliefs because you weren't made to. It's not an actual way that we can live in the world. The central prayer of the people of Israel was, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. What the Bible is trying to do is integrate the parts that we separate. And what we see as Jesus brings his kingdom is that he's trying to integrate those parts under the reign and rule of Jesus, the rightful king. That when we submit our lives to this king, all the parts turn into a harmonious whole. And now, as we talk about what it means to be faithful in our political aspirations, I just want to lay my cards on the table. A couple things. Because I think this is the other thing that happens. Just as we can't compartmentalize our beliefs... You know, have you ever heard somebody say, just give me the objective facts. Don't interpret it, just tell me what happened. Now, there's only one problem with that. That's not a thing. We are always interpreting what is happening. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there's no truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But those three things put together cannot be separated. Jesus is the Jesus truth as we follow the Jesus way. And that is how we get to the Jesus life. And so for, for us today, friends, I simply want to lay out, here's where I'm coming from. Now, this does not mean that I do this super well. This does not mean that it's easy. It's, in fact, incredibly complex. But I believe, I believe the scriptures are an inhabitable story. And here's what I mean by that. I believe that they were designed, given to us by God, not just as a record of what happened, but to capture our imaginations for what is possible. And I believe that we, this people together, that we can live out the beauty of the gospel of Jesus together. I believe that Jesus has a preferential option for the poor. I believe the gospel is for the oppressor and the oppressed. But when Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, took on skin and bones, he took on brown skin in a first century context, identifying with the poor. He was weak and he was lowly in that societal context. And friends, for us who... Many of us inhabit sort of richer spaces. That is a call to hear the story well. I believe that Jesus' beatitudes are a proclamation of his kingdom agenda. That it's not just a nice idea that Jesus is completely turning the world upside down. And I believe the story of the cross and the resurrection creates in us a new political identity. That God has called us to freedom to live into. And the reality is we will be formed by the story that we identify as the biggest, most important story. And over the past several years, I've been involved with several dialogues with people claiming the name of Jesus and, and just trying to, like, I, I sort of felt compelled at times to speak out and to say that's not who Jesus is. Oftentimes when people were, were making claims or, or politicians were saying things, I'm like, I do this because I'm a Christian. And I'm like, well, that doesn't look anything like Jesus to me. And I would say that as an invitation to a dialogue, as an invitation to talk. Like, let's bring it back to the story that we have been given, the story of the scriptures. Let's reason this out. But what I often found, and this is not somehow saying, oh, I'm you know, so smart and other people need to figure it out. But what I often found was that as I tried to dialogue around the scriptures, people were starting from political talking points as opposed to who Jesus is and what he's called us to. Now, again, this, as those of you who are close to me know, does not mean that I know everything about Jesus and live it all out perfectly. 
But what it does mean is that that is our framing story as the people of God. That is our starting point. We're going to start there. And again, there are different interpretations. There are different ways of reading the story. But at least we're dialoguing about that. But what I often found was scriptural story over here, political story over here, and they can't be translated to one another. And so the question we often have to ask ourselves is what is the big story that we are inhabiting? What is the big story that forms our imagination, that shows us what's possible in the world? And this is where we come to Palm Sunday. Luke 19, beginning in verse 36. As Jesus rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. He's echoing the promises given in Zechariah, verses, or chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah writes, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that fateful week, the last week of his earthly life, he rides on a donkey, echoing the prophets, saying the king is coming, and the people are picking up on the echoes. Just like the people welcomed Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9, they are laying their cloaks out on the road, symbolizing that this is a great king. They've heard the rumors and the deeds that Jesus has done, and they're like, Maybe the Messiah is here. Because you have to understand this about first century Jewish people. They had a national aspiration, a national expectation that God was going to do something again in their midst. They had a promise that was given to Abraham that they would be sort of the central point of the story of the world. That God was going to use them to bless the nations. They had promises given to David that David would never fail to have a ruler on the throne. They had these promises, and then they had Passover. And it just so happens on this holy week to be Passover week. It just so happens that as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that last week of his life, the people have migrated there, have made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And what is Passover? But a story about slaves being set free. A story about God working miraculously through his chosen person, Moses, working in a way that liberates the captives, that establishes a new world order, that brings a nation out of a people, a group of slaves, bringing them out of Egypt. And as the people have heard about this Jesus, they've heard the healings, they've heard the resurrections, the things that he has done, they're like, maybe this is the one. Maybe it's time for revolution. Maybe it's time to fight. There's a reason Peter draws a sword in the garden. Because again, the national story that they are telling themselves, the national story that they are inhabiting, is sort of steeped in the scriptures, but just slightly off. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, 
The hopes of the people on that Palm Sunday are laid down on that road, that dirt road. As they lay down their cloaks, they are laying their hopes and their dreams. You have to understand this. This is a really understandable hope. You see, as I've already described, the Romans were a brutal, ruling people. They would often crucify people just to make a show of a town, just to say, remind people that Rome's might is not to be trifled with. Many of the people that would have been along the road welcoming Jesus would have had family members or friends that had been brutally uh, treated by the Romans. And so this is not just a, like, a religious story. This is a deeply visceral story, a political story. And they're like, is it time to fight? And as we're going to see in just a moment, that expectation wouldn't go away. And I think for many of us, we see many American Christians falling victim to a very similar delusion. It's the delusion that God somehow needs or favors America. And typically this is also expressed by those who think that God somehow uh, needs or favors white people. White Christian nationalism is the, t the term that's often applied to it. And again, I hope you can hear me. This is not saying any there's anything wrong with being a white person. God made you in his image. But there's also a lot that has been wrapped up in these stories. And what is so often is presented in these spaces is a demonic lie and is the kind of demonic lie that has been at the root of the church's greatest failures throughout our history. Moments of complete complicity with the forces of darkness, the Crusades, the Middle Passage slave trade, the Holocaust, the genocide in Rwanda, and what's going on with the Russian Orthodox Church right now. You see, after the Russians invaded Ukraine, their patriarch, their voice of God in the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, blessed the invasion. Now, none of us from this side of the pond would say, oh yeah, they're, they're fighting for God. They're doing God's will in Ukraine. We've seen the, the, the atrocities. But again, this is what happens when our national aspirations get wrapped up in what we think God is doing in the world. In the New York Times this week, Ruth Graham and Elizabeth Diaz wrote an article called The Growing Religious Fervor in the American Right. And they describe the intertwining of political rallies with worship music. A lot of the songs that we sing in here are being used at political rallies as a way of, of identity marking and saying, like, this is a, you know, coloring the political platform with the, all the trappings of Jesus. And friends, I want to say to all of you in here today, I know because many of you are my friends, that many of us in here, many of you are politically conservative. And I want to just say, this is not like me saying, oh, that's wrong and that's bad. I would hope that as you see some of these expressions of these kind of far-right extremes, that you as a conservative would also say, that's not conservative and it has nothing to do with Jesus. I hope that we as a people can tell that kind of truth. But I also think it's important that we do see that there is a growing subset in our culture, a, a growing and loud subset of co uh, conservative political engagement that is taking the name of Jesus in vain, touting violence and complete contempt in the name of Jesus. And friends, if our politics allow us to dehumanize another person, they have nothing to do with Jesus. They are antichrist and demonic. Leslie Newbigin says, the sacralizing of politics, when we make politics the biggest story for us, the total identification of a political goal with the will of God always unleash demonic powers. 
And we know this from history. We see it play out, but often in our own day. We either fail to name it or we fail to see what's happening. And what I've seen just as a pastor is that so many people have placed their primary identity and thus their primary allegiance because, again, we will live into whatever we consider the biggest story. Not in being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of the living God, but in their chosen political party. And Palm Sunday shows us that the big story, the meta story that a person claims can have all the trappings of religious language. They're welcoming Jesus as king. Save us. They have it so right, and yet they have it so wrong. Because a week later, they will be saying, that same crowd that will be saying, Hosanna, save us, will be saying, crucify him. And many of us try to hold up these compartments. And my prayer is that we would see that the way to the Jesus truth and the Jesus life is the Jesus way. And that we would begin to see, as we see Jesus on this Palm Sunday, that he's calling us to a different way. Let's look at verse 41 in Luke 19. As he came near Jesus and he saw the city, he wept over it. Crowd that has just welcomed Jesus. Jesus gets near the city that he loves and he weeps. And he says, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because, because you did not recognize the time of visitation from God. Jesus is weeping. He weeps over the city because he sees that they are completely subservient to a delusion and a lie. He thinks, he knows that they think he is this liberating king in the way that they want him to be a liberating king. They want him to lead a bloody revolution against the Romans, but he is just not that kind of king. Jesus says the people are so wrapped up in their ideological story that they can't see. They can't see that God has come to them, and they can't see what's coming. Jesus, in describing in Luke 19, the days that will come upon you, is prophesying over the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand, Jesus was crucified in somewhere around 30 to 33 AD, somewhere in that time span. But some 40 years later, the Romans would march into Jerusalem, and they would do exactly what Jesus said they were going to do at this moment right here. They would march into Jerusalem, and they would completely lay waste to the city. Because even in 70 AD, the, the, the people, the Jewish people, were holding on to these promises in ways that were antithetical to the way that Jesus had come. They were saying, we have to revolt. We have to rebel. And what Jesus is saying to them in this moment is that when you do, it is not going to go well for you. You think that you have to rebel. You think that you have to take the promises of God for yourself. But God has already come. The visitation of your God has already come upon you. And the Romans will completely obliterate the city. 70 AD. There's no temple in Jerusalem today from that moment in the first century. And Jesus is weeping. So what do we do? In a complex world like our own, in a polarized world like our own, what are the things that make for peace? Well, I think the first thing that I try to do 
when I see something, I'm like, oh, what do we, like, how do we name that? How do we, how do we live courageously maybe against that? I think we have to identify what are the perceived needs that people are trying to meet. You see, like, none of us ever look at history and we see kind of the way things play out. We're like, you know what? I'd really like to be on the wrong side of everything. That, that would have been me back then. We all see the courageous people. We see the people that take a stand and we say, I would have liked to have think I would be like that person. I would like to think I would be that kind of courageous person. So I think we have to first identify what are the longings. Well, the first longing I think political idolatry tries to satisfy in us is just our longing for security and control. Because part of it that's understandable. And especially when those longings are fed with a propaganda stream of fear, who you should be afraid of, why you should be terrified all the time, like, this sort of makes sense to me, why people are grasping on to these small stories. And so hopefully, as people of Jesus, the Jesus way, like, we can start not with judgment, even for people that may be living in delusions, but start with compassion. Say, hey, I see, I see what you're trying to grasp there. I see the fear that you've given over to, but Jesus' love casts out all fear. The second thing I think we see as people are identifying their lives with these larger political stories, and this happens both on the right and the left. I've seen this many young Christians that you know, I've been uh, privileged to walk alongside. They have seen some of, the, some of the abuses on the Christian right, and they've said, whatever that is, I want nothing to do with that. And so they've sort of become subservient to the narrative that often takes place on the left. And what I think we see happening here is we all have this ingrained desire because we're made in the image of God to participate in a big story. And what are the political discussions in our day but big stories? Now, politics are really about bridge building and budgets. It's not that fun stuff. But the big stories are about, like, who's the good guys? Who are the bad guys? What is it all? Why does this have ultimate uh, purpose and worth and meaning? I think what we see in the political conversations in our day and why it's so all-consuming is that it has offered people a vision of the biggest story. But let me tell you something, people of Jesus. You have a bigger story. Because empires come and they go. You can open up a history book and find the great culture of the Romans. No more. You can go visit the ruins. But you are a citizen of a city with no end. A citizen of a kingdom that will never cease. And a king who has life and life eternal in his hands. Jesus invites you to security. Eternal security that's lived out here in the present, right here and now. It's not that we're called to, oh, I'm going to be in heaven someday. Therefore, I don't have to be courageous or I don't have to make decisions. No, we're called to eternal security, which gives us the freedom to live courageously in this moment right now. And that is the best story. Jesus brings us to his peace. He says, you didn't know the things that make for peace, but I am the prince of peace. But it's the way, the way that he will bring about his kingdom that is not just a critique of two proverbial sides. And in our culture, that's right and left. It's not just Jesus saying, oh, here's what's wrong with this side. Here's what's wrong with this side. I'm standing over here. Jesus carves a new way a completely unforeseen way right through the middle of our two polar existences. The way of peace, the way to peace is the way of peace. The way of, to security is the self-giving love of Jesus. 
And friends, it's a hard task to live faithfully in an age such as our own. But we, re- we must resist the urge, Ecclesia, to idolize politics and thus to make them the ultimate story. And for us, may we not be a people who participate in the machinations of the conversation the way it's so often handed to us. But we also must resist the urge to abdicate politics. When Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is near, he gave the witness to a group of people that were later called the ecclesia, the the church, which in that time was a, a political assembly in a local space. We are called to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven in this space, in our life right now. Stanley Howarth says it so well. The cross is not a sign of the church's quiet, suffering submission to the powers that be, but rather the church's revolutionary participation in the victory of Christ over those powers. The cross is not a symbol for general human suffering and oppression. Rather, the cross is a sign of what happens when one takes God's account of reality more seriously than Caesar. The cross stands as God's and our eternal no to the powers of death, as well as God's eternal yes to humanity, God's remarkable determination not to leave us to our own devices. You didn't know the way that made for peace, neither did I. But Jesus has not left us to our own devices. There is a mercy that awaits us. When we, talk, when we take God's account of history more seriously, then we take the accounting that our world offers to us, we find that we are able to live in light of a new politic, the way of the cross. Charles de Cherguet was a French Trappist monk living in Algeria. And he had gotten the premonition, the events in that, uh, political, or that political environment were such that a lot of vestiges of Western culture were being wiped out in Algeria, especially those uh, with anything to do with Christian faith. And so Charles de Cherguet is serving in this place, and he kind of gets the premonition that, that stuff is spiraling downward. And eventually he's like, I think, I think this might be it for me. I think I'm going to be killed at the hands of Islamic extremists that are uh, kind of roaming about the countryside. And there's a, there's a movie about this story of, of gods and men that came out like 10 years ago or so. But Charles de Chirguet, as he sort of realizes this, he writes a letter. And it's just kind of unveiling, here's, here's why I'm staying. And he says, if it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism that it now seems to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my company, my church, my family, to remember that my life was given to God and to Algeria. And that they accept that the sole master of all of life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I would like when the time comes to have the space of clearness that would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of my fellow human beings. And at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who will strike me down. I could not desire such a death. It seems to me important to state this. How could I rejoice if the Algerian people I love were indiscriminately accused of my murder? My death obviously will appear to confirm those who hastily judged me naive or idealistic. Let him tell us now what he thinks of it. But they should know this. For this life lost, I give thanks to God. In this thank you, which is said for everything in my life from now on, I certainly include you, my last minute friend, who will not have known what you are doing. 
I commend you to the God in whose face I see yours. And may we find each other happy, good thieves in paradise, if it please God, our Father, our Creator. You see, he's not just praying that God would forgive the person. He's praying that God would bring them to a saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. In Ecclesia, I could literally, I could spend hours, and this is what we'll have eternity for, telling stories just like this one. There are stories playing out all over the world, people saying, Caesar has an accounting of the world that says that death is the end, that says that the power that the state has is the power to kill you, and Jesus looks in the face with all the mercy of God and all the love of God and says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. We are invited and compelled to a new politic because of the cross. And the way to peace is the way of the cross of self-giving love. But we can live in security in that way because of Easter. Because death does not get the final word. The story we tell ourselves, the story of Caesar, is as we yell, crucify Jesus, we yell at Jesus, you could come down from the cross, come down and fight. And Jesus says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus' mercy invites us to a new politic, to name the forces of darkness that are in our midst, and they are dark but to stare down them with the courage of Easter, the resurrection of God, that we have a life that is secure and settled in heaven that will never fade. And that in that place, we will laugh at stories like this one. That though the darkness was deep, though the tears were real, there is a life that has taken them, all those dark forces, unto itself and has exhausted their power. We are invited to courage in the way of Jesus, to peace in the way of Jesus, because he's already secured our future right now. Palm Sunday, as an embarkment upon Holy Week, is an invitation to put down our small stories, to put down our distorted stories, and to see Jesus for who he is. To see that he is rich in mercy, abundant in love, that he calls us to a new way, a way that puts our neighbors first. A new politic where suffering love is the way towards conquest, where the wisdom of our world is the foolishness of our God. And we are called as a people to live out this new politic. To be united by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. To say, in the face of all the American political discourse, in the face of all our cultural discourses, that we are together, that we are a new family. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And just as Jesus rode to Jerusalem on that Passover week, we come to Jesus' Passover table that declares that this is the biggest story that we live into, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm going to invite you in just a moment to the table. And as you come, you, you received palms when you came in. I saw that the kids adequately assessed that they were used for weapons, so <laughs> that worked out well. But as you come, I'm just going to invite you, maybe just as a symbol, to come bring your palm and just lay it down. 
and to say, God, like, I want your story to shape my imagination. I want your story to be my aspiration. And for those of you who have been, who have been harmed, who have been hurt in many ways by the kind of political crossfire that we all kind of live in the midst of, I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to bring you comfort. The conflation of, of Jesus Christian symbols with white nationalist marches has nothing to do with Jesus. It is demonic, and we as the people of God name those things. But I also want to speak to those of you who have uh, just the heartache in your family. Like the Thanksgiving table became a place where you're like basically just parroting different websites, and you're like, what is happening here? It seems we're speaking gibberish to each other. I'm going to pray for peace in your life and in your family. And lastly, I'm going to pray for courage. The only plausibility of a new politic in our culture is gatherings like this one. The only way people could see a new way, a way of self-giving love, a way that, that models what it means to be a people of a new humanity, are gatherings like this one. From every skin pigmentation, tongue, tribe, and nation, people coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds, coming together around the table of Jesus. This is a sign that the world has been made new. Think about it. There's just no reason we're all in this room together. Other than Jesus is risen. We embark upon Holy Week with that expectation.